Please open with me uh, to God's Word. Our passage tonight is 1 Kings chapter 20. I'm going to preach on the entire chapter. It's 43 verses, which is a lot. At least sometimes when I have a chapter of this size, I find it difficult in reading through it all at one time to pay attention and to grasp everything that's going on. And so what I've chosen to do tonight is to kind of handle it in sections. Uh, we're not going to read it through in its entirety at the beginning. Instead, we're just going to read the first uh, 12 verses uh, right now. And then we'll go into the introduction of the sermon. And then before each of the points... And there will be three points eventually in the sermon. Uh, we're going to read a different section of the story and kind of advance through it uh, in that way. So that's the way we're going to handle this uh, this evening. And so look with me, if you would, 1 Kings chapter 20 and verses 1 through 12. Uh, remember, this is all taking place during the ministry of Elijah. Elisha has been called to be Elijah's successor, but now in this passage... Uh, neither Elijah or, nor Elisha are mentioned, but only King Ahab and a threat which they have received from the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad. Let's now hear God's uh, holy word. Uh, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him and horses and chariots. And he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. And he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine, your best wives and children also are mine. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. Messengers came again and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent to you, saying, Deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. The king of Israel called all the elders of the land, and said, Mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble, for he sent to me for my wives and my children and for my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. All the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. So he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king, All that you first demanded of your servant I will do, but this thing I cannot do. The messengers departed and brought him word again. Then Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me, and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. The king of Israel answered, Tell him, Let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he takes it off, as he who takes it off. When Ben-Hadad heard this message as he was drinking with the kings in the booths, he said to his men, take your positions. And they took their positions against the city. 
We're going to stop the reading right now. Again, as I mentioned earlier, we'll make our way through the rest of this chapter in the course of the sermon. But let's now stop and seek the Lord's face once again in prayer. Lord, our God, we give you thanks for uh, your word. All of it is profitable for your people, for teaching, reproof, instruction, and training in righteousness that we, the men of God, might be thoroughly furnished unto every uh, good work. And we ask, Lord, uh, that your word, your all-sufficient word, would serve in that way today. Bless especially the word as it is preached. Grant us, Lord, ears to hear. Might we quickly apply the things which you tell us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. Well, these uh, first 12 verses that we have just read describe a rather ominous uh, situation. Uh, Ben-Hadad, the Aramean king or king of Syria, uh, was threatening Israel. Uh, He had gathered uh, 32 different local tribal leaders on his side. And now with these 32 leaders, he shows up on Israel. Israel's border and begins making immediate demands. He's powerful. He's a bully. Kind of the image that I had in my mind as I was thinking of this situation is of that 12-year-old boy who shows up at the playground with his gang of friends and tells all the little 7 and 8-year-olds on the playground that they need to scram or else they're going to have their way with him. He's acting like a bully. That's what he's doing to the weaker and less powerful uh, Israel. And so Ben-Hadad shows up, flexes his muscles, and begins to make his demands. Verse 3, he demands all the silver and the gold that Ahab had, along with his best wives and his children. Well, uh, He essentially is wanting to reduce Israel to a kind of vassal status. And so Ahab responds. Now what Ahab should have done uh, was to, in this moment, to call out upon God. To cry to the Lord for wisdom and for mercy. But instead, Ahab sinfully acquiesces. He says, yes, Ben-Hadad, it's all yours. Well, Ben-Hadad thinks that was rather easy. And so he gets greedy for a little bit more. And he says, well, not only will I take your silver and gold, your best wives and your children, but instead I'm going to, this time tomorrow, bring all of my servants among you and they're just going to take whatever pleases their eyes. All of it is going to be mine. We're taking over entirely. Well, uh, Ahab at this moment stops and thinks. Now, you notice he doesn't, still he doesn't consult the Lord. Uh, he doesn't seek godly advice, but he does turn to the elders and to the people and he says, well, I get the feeling if I keep acquiescing that we're going to be reduced to nothing very quickly. So what is it that I should do? And the elders and the people are unanimous in their uh, response and they say, well, the, dr- the line needs to be drawn at this point. Draw the line here. Come what may, we need to stand against this tyrant. Well, Ben-Hadad 
doesn't take kindly uh, to this. And so the line has been drawn in the sand. Friends, the fight is inevitable. We are on the doorstep here of war between Syria and Israel. And what else could be done against a tyrant like this? Well, a little trash talking then ensues. Uh, You'll hear that. Ben Hadad uh, shouts his trash talk across to Israel. Uh, He says, The gods do so to me and more also if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people. In other words, when we're done with you, you're not even going to have enough dust in Israel for all the people that I'm bringing in to conquer. Well, Ahab says, I need to respond to that one. And so essentially he says to them, don't count your chickens before your hatch. In other words, don't take off your armor until you first put it on. Let's handle this one step at a time. So the battle lines have been drawn. A little trash talking has gone on. And now we get to find out what's going to happen next in the showdown between Syria and Israel. And it becomes the setting. This arrangement, this situation now, becomes the setting for the Lord to show up and to speak through His prophet. That's what we're going to see in the verses that follow. Because into this, the Lord has a word to say. And we're going to see three things about the Lord's word. First of all, we're going to see the Lord's word of grace followed by the Lord's word of power, and then thirdly, the Lord's word to be obeyed. The Lord's word of grace, the Lord's word of power, and then the Lord's word to be obeyed. Well, first of all, we're going to have the Lord's word of grace. And we find this in the next verses from verses 13 down through verse 21. So let me read these verses and then I'll preach on this section, okay? Uh, So beginning at verse 13. Well, and behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Ahab said, By whom? And he said, Well, thus says the Lord, by the servants of the governors of the districts. Then he said, who shall begin the battle? He answered, you. Then he mustered the servants of the governors of the districts, and they were 232. After them, he mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000. They went out at noon while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths. He and the thirty-two kings who helped him, the servants of the governors of the districts, went out first. Ben-Hadad sent out scouts, and they reported to him, Men are coming out from Samaria. And he said, They've come out for peace, take them alive. Or if they've come out for war, uh, take them alive. So these went out of the city, the servants of the governors of the districts and the army that followed them. And each struck down his man. Syrians fled, 
And Israel pursued them, but Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, escaped on a horse with horsemen. The king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots, and struck the Syrians with a great blow. I've entitled this section, The Lord's Word of Grace. We had just set the stage of what was going on. We have a proud, godless king, Ben-Hadad, who has set himself against God's covenant people, who themselves are led by a proud, godless king, Ahab. And it seems like, well, this story should be rather simple. The wicked will destroy the wicked. uh, End of story. But then, seemingly out of nowhere, a prophet comes to bring a word from the Lord into this situation. Now, notice this prophet would have had, had to have had some courage to approach Ahab. Uh, last we knew of Ahab, he had vowed to put Elijah, and presumably a lot of the other prophets of Yahweh as well, to the sword. But this prophet courageously appears in Ahab's presence. And then... Speaking the word of the Lord, and this is where the surprise really comes. He doesn't bring a word of warning or threatening to this idolatrous king, but he brings a word of blessing. He says to him, this great multitude of the Syrian army that you don't know how you're possibly going to face them, you see all of them. I'm going to give it into your hand this day. Well, how are you going to do this? Ahab asks. Well, by the servants of the governors of the districts. Not military leaders, but mere servants. And who shall begin the battle? Well, you should. And so, whereas in the earlier verses, verses 1 through 12, we read time and again, thus says Ben-Hadad, thus says Ben-Hadad, verses 2, verse 5, verse 10, we now read in these verses several times, thus says the Lord. Then Hadad had spoken, but now the Lord speaks, and the Lord's word trumps uh, this pagan king's word every time. The prophet has announced it. Israel is going to be victorious. And so the prophecy is fulfilled just as the prophet had said. Uh, Ben-Hadad is so confident in his victory, he's having a drinking party with all of these other uh, tribal leaders. And by the way, in this passage, you see some of the foolishness of drunkenness. Uh, This uh, king uh, makes foolish decisions. In fact, when the spies are sent out and they said, we see people from Samaria beginning to advance, he sends out the... uh, Just stupid instruction. Well, if they're here for peace, take them alive. If they're here for war, take them alive. Uh, Take all of them alive, all 7,000, if they're here for war. If they're here for for peace, you shouldn't accept some kind of term. It just doesn't make any sense. Well, again, the man wasn't thinking straight. He was drunk. What ends up happening is exactly everything that the prophet had, had said. The Israelites went out. They begin to... Uh, They went out of the city, the servants, uh, the army is following them, and each one strikes down his man, and the Syrians 
flee Israel, pursues them. Ben-Hadad escapes on a horse, and they struck Syria that day with an extraordinary blow. It's a victory for Israel and a victory at the hand of the Lord. What is it that we're to see in this passage? What's the thing that stands out? Well, I think it is this. It is that the Lord has intervened in a desperate situation with a word of His grace. And that's what it is. It's unexpected, undeserved, and full of blessing. Uh, Ralph Davis puts it this way. He says that all this help from the Lord is purely Yahweh's gift. Ahab never seeks a lick of it. It is God-initiated and prophet-imposed. And it's utterly baffling. When viewed in the larger context, we are thrown for a loop. Why such kindness shown to the Ahab of chapters 17 through 19? Why does this king receive any goodness from the Lord? Davis goes on to say, well, we can't say it's amazing grace. That would be redundant. Grace, by definition, is amazing. And here it is, possibly in its most offensive form. Ahab has been the recipient of God's kind gift, a kind gift of his grace. Now, what Ahab receives here is not God's uh, saving grace. But it is grace nonetheless. It's what we might call a kind of a common grace. It's the kind of grace that God gives every day to all kinds of different people. Uh, to the righteous and to the wicked alike. That God showers blessing, undeserved, unexpected blessing into the lives of, of people every day. A sweet lick of an ice cream cone. A gentle breeze on a summer afternoon. Enough money, not just to slide by with some food and water, but enough money for multiple cars and a furnished home and a vacation. The gift of laughter with good friends. A secure nation in which to dwell under the rule of law. Another year of good health. A job that you like. A crossword puzzle to do. <laughs> Your favorite TV show that you enjoy. Sports to play. A great meal that you can sit down to. And the list, dear friends, goes on and on and on. Each one of these things is the precious, undeserved gift of a gracious God. And why does the Lord give these gifts? Why does the Lord give these kinds of gifts uh, to people who pay scant attention to Him? The answer is, it is a kind of grace. It is a grace which should have led Ahab uh, to deep repentance. Uh, to, to realize his own wickedness. And here is a, a prophet of the Lord announcing this extraordinary victory over this Assyrian army. And it's a kind of gift as well that should lead people today to repentance as well. 
Romans 2.4 makes this very point when it says, Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Every day that we live in God's world and receive gifts from His hand, is to lead us that we would turn our faces to Him in repentance and trust in Him and love Him who is the giver of all of those good gifts. And I simply ask you, are you amazed at God's goodness and His kindness? And Does it lead you, unlike Ahab, to respond in thankfulness to Him? Well, let me just say this other point before we leave uh, these verses. And it is to say this, that if God's common grace like this is amazing, How much more amazing, then, is His saving grace. Saving grace, which justifies those who are ungodly. Saving grace, which makes a rebel into God's child. Saving grace, which brings eternal life to those who are worthy only of eternal death. That ought to make us utterly amazed, saving grace, which is initiated by God, imposed by God, when we weren't looking for it or asking for it. Dear friends, if if we look at this and we say this is utterly baffling that the Lord could be this kind to Ahab, we ought to look at ourselves and say, oh, how much more baffling it is that God would bestow the gift of eternal life upon a hell-deserving sinner like Amazing grace, John Newton wrote, how sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. The Lord intervenes, and He intervenes with a word of grace. Let's move on now. A second word from the Lord. And this is going to be the Lord's word of power. The Lord's word of power. We're going to find this in verses 22 through 30. So let's once again hear God's word beginning in verse 22. Well, then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself and consider well what you have to do. For in the spring, the king of Syria will come up against you. The servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills, so they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain. Surely we shall be stronger than they. And do this, remove the kings, each from his post, and put commanders in their places, and muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. He listened to their voice and did so. In the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. The people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats. But the Syrians filled the country. 
the man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And they encamped opposite one another seven days. Then on the seventh day, the battle was joined. The people of Israel struck down of the Syrians 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. And the rest fled into the city of Aphek. And the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. Let's stop the reading uh, right there. Again, I've entitled this section now, uh, The Lord's Word of Power. So round one of the fight is over. Round two is about to begin. And indeed, the prophet of the Lord knew that round two would begin. That's the irony of all of this. Is that at the same time that the Syrians are saying, well, their God, he's only a God of the hills and not of the plains. He doesn't know everything. He's not everywhere. At the same time that they're saying that, the prophet of the Lord is telling Ahab all of their plans that they're about to do. The Lord knows everything. And so he says to Ahab, the prophet does, well, beware, the fight's not over. In the spring, they're going to attack again. And so, indeed, the Syrians begin to make plans for another attack. They think, well, we failed once, but we're not going to fail a second time. Let's have a little adjustment in our strategy. And it's first of all going to be a kind of military adjustment that we're going to make. Uh, Let's kick out those 32 kings. They were rather useless. Put in their place more military men, real commanders who can lead a real army. So they make a military adjustment. And then as well, they make a kind of, uh, uh, we might say, a a theological um, uh, adjustment. Well, the second plank of their strategy does involve theology. And they say, well, well, we figured out that when we fight in the mountains, we lose. So their God must be a God of the mountains. They kind of assumed that Israel's God was like their God, an idol, not real powerful. Uh, And so they say, well, let's not do the mountains. Let's instead go to the plains. There in the plains, I think that we can have uh, some victories. We'll prevail there. And so they assume that the Israelite God was uh, limited in his power. And so... They, they come into war with this new strategy. Uh, the Syrians wage war again. This time they pick a, a certain location named Aphek. It's a town that is located uh, to the east of the Sea of Galilee on a major road between Damascus and Beth Shan. Well, they line up once again. Bring time now for battle. And if it looked like the Israelites were doomed in that first battle, well, it looks kind of, looks like they're uh, sort of doubly doomed now. You can notice the contrast uh, between the two armies. It's described in verse 27. Uh, The people of Israel, and you remember their number was about 7,000. They looked like two little flocks of goats. It's not how you want your army described. (laughs) The Syrians, on the other hand, filled the country. And at least the numbers who would later be killed, it's at least 127,000 
uh, that were in their army. So it doesn't look promising by the outward eyes, right? But, and this is the lesson that we're taught here, the decisive thing isn't the size of the armies or the military strategy, but rather the battle belongs to the Lord. The decisive thing is what is the Lord's will. In verse 28, we're told what the Lord's will. The man of God comes and he says to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord. Now this is the decisive thing. Because the Syrians have said that the Lord God is a God of the hills, but he's not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give this great multitude into your hand and you shall know that I am the Lord. That the Lord is not a limited God. He's not geographically limited. He's not restricted in his power. But rather, the Lord is glorious and He's sovereign and He does according to His holy will even when it seems that the odds are against Him. And then what we read next is of the seemingly impossible happening. In a single day, a hundred thousand foot soldiers killed. Oh, but some of the Syrians, a significant number, 27,000 escape, or at least 27,000. They go and escape back into the city. And then we're told, and we're not told how this happens, we're simply told the fact they went to a place that they thought was a place of refuge, and a wall falls. 27,000 of them killed. 127,000 Syrians are now dead kind of have echoes, don't we, here of, of Jericho. Seventh day, a falling wall. Another time in which the Lord saved Israel when it seemed that the odds were stacked against them and saved them according to His great power. And He does it yet again in the days now of Ahab. And we're not really, you notice again, we're not given any great details about all this. We're not told of any military strategy and tactics and cleverness that Ahab used, but rather all of this is attributed to the word of the Lord. Dear friends, the word of the Lord is a word of power. The point of this is, is that you can gather all the armies of the world and they cannot defeat the Lord. Is He a God of the mountains only? No, He's a God of the of the plains as well. He's a God of everywhere else in the universe. There is no area where He does not rule and reign as sovereign. There is nothing that He cannot do for the honor and the glory of His name. The Lord vindicates His name here among His people. His word is a word of power. Friends, that truth that our Lord is a God of extraordinary power is one of the most comforting and one of the most relevant and practical truths that you and I can live with on a day-by-day basis. Friends, we need to be convinced that our God is the God who is able to defeat the Syrian army. He continues to exist today. As we take the gospel out, for example, to a secular world, and the gospel sounds like foolishness, and we wonder... Is anyone going to believe this in the world in which we live? Friends, our God is a God of power. 
You can break stony hearts and save sinners according to his will. Or you might say, well, but in my own Christian life, I, I struggle so much in my fight against sin, and there are some sins that, that just seem enslaving to me, impossible to conquer. Could I, could I possibly gain any victory in my own life? And you're tempted to be filled with despair. And what we need to remember is that our God is a God of power. A God who is able to overcome indwelling sin in our lives. And that's where our confidence must lie. Not in our flesh, but in the God of power. Or we might ask, well, I have certain relationships uh, that just seem utterly broken. Why should I continue to pray and hope and work for reconciliation when, when it seems like absolutely everything is is lost. That old poem says, what all the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Humpty Dumpty back together again. That's the way a lot of our relationships seem. But do you know, dear friends, we serve a God who can put Humpty Dumpty back together again and who can heal brokenness and who can bring restoration in the midst of difficult things. And we need to live as a people of hope who believe in the power of Almighty God. Dear friends, we need to be a people who believe in the power of God. And that's why, dear friends, in this present world, you and I can keep believing that we have a God who made this world in the space of six days. We can keep believing that we serve Jesus Christ who really did turn water into wine and who multiplied bread and fish and who walked on water and who brought the dead to life and who Himself was brought from death to life. And we can continue to believe in a Jesus who is going to return at the end of the age. And dear friends, we live in a world where people mock that kind of thing. But we say we believe it. Why? Because our God is a God of power. He was able to do. He continues to be able to do. He will do in the future those things which seem to many to be impossible. It's the lesson of this verse. God who brings victory out of the jaws of defeat is a God who is not restrained by Ben-Hadad or any foreign army. He's a God of complete and utter sovereign power. We believe that. His word is a word of power. So the word of the Lord is a word of grace. It's a word of power. Now, third and finally, dear friends, I want us to see that it's a word that is to be obeyed. The Lord's word to be obeyed. This brings us uh, to the remaining verses, verse 31 now, down through the end of the chapter. Let's hear once again God's word. And his servants said to him, Behold now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are... Uh, see, I, I left off the end of verse 30. Ben-Hadad also fled and entered an inner chamber in the city. And his servants said to him, Behold now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us put sackcloth around our waist and ropes on our head and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. 
So they tied sackcloth round their waists and put ropes on their heads and went to the king of Israel and said, uh, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. He said, Does he still live? He is my brother. Now the men were watching for a sign and they quickly took it up from him and said, Yes, your brother Ben-Hadad. And then he said, Go and bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him, and he caused him to come up into the chariot. And Ben-Hadad said to him, "Uh, The cities that my father took from your father I will restore, uh, that you may establish uh, bazaars for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. And he made a covenant with him and let him go. A certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his fellow at the command of the Lord, Strike me, please. But the man refused to strike him. And then he said to him, Because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And as soon as he had departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. And then he found another man and said, Strike me, please. And the man struck him, struck him and wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed, he cried to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle, and behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man, if by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And as your servant was How busy here and there, he was gone. The king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be, you yourself have decided it. Then he hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets, and he said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life, and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house, vexed and sullen, and came to Samaria. Well, the tables have totally turned, have they not? After two defeats, Ben-Hadad has been humbled. No longer is his arrogant boasting that we heard at the beginning of this chapter. No longer is he plotting Israel's destruction, but now instead he is plotting how he might get in Ahab's good graces, and preserve his own life. And so he and his uh, counselors kind of come up with a plan. They're going to um, uh, uh, humble themselves, put on the, the clothes of, uh, of servanthood. They're going to put some sackcloth, some ropes, and so forth, and go out to the king of Israel and just uh, plead for uh, his mercy. That's their plan. And that's exactly what they do. Well, how does Ahab respond to this? Well, Ahab uh, responds in a kind of uh, opportunistic way. Um, He uh, goes ahead and gives him some encouragement. He calls Ben-Hadad his brother. He invites him up into the chariot. He decides to preserve Ben-Hadad's life and instead makes a kind of a treaty with Syria. He enters into a covenant in which now, um, well, 
Israel is going to get certain uh, cities from Damascus. They're going to be able to open up trade in Syria. And this alliance, it's going to help Israel, probably, reading between the lines a little bit, against a looming threat of Assyria that is against them. And so uh, uh, Ahab probably felt pretty good about himself taking advantage of the situation. We, we got a couple victories. Oh, how this is going to turn out for, for, our, for our good. He, um, he engages in a bit of diplomacy. And the problem really is this, is it not? Uh, that instead of recognizing that the victory was the Lord's and seeking the Lord's will about what he should do, uh, Ahab acts like the victory was his. He engages in a kind of diplomacy without seeking God's face. You see, this war was a holy war. It was God's war. God had powerfully delivered Ben-Hadad into Ahab's hand. And though the command isn't explicitly stated here, the writer of Kings assumes that we know and certainly assumes that Ahab should have known what to do with Ben-Hadad. He was to be devoted to destruction. Just like the holy wars that we find in the book of of Joshua. Uh, He was to be devoted to destruction. Israel was not to make alliances with the surrounding nations. He wasn't to compromise uh, with Uh, Ben-Hadad. He wasn't uh, to kind of rationalize his uh, way to victory, but rather his dependence was to be wholly upon the Lord. His duty was clear, and that duty Ahab failed to perform. It's this that leads to the final encounter with the prophet in these verses. It's a rather strange episode, isn't it? Beginning at verse uh, 35, it's the prophet uh, he begins by telling his command, companion to, to strike him. It's a word from the Lord. Strike me, please. The companion doesn't do it. The companion has failed to follow the word of the Lord. And in a, a kind of preview of the sentence that's going to be given against Ahab, uh, a lion comes and destroys this companion. Oh, to not follow the Lord's will is a serious thing. And so, a second companion is told, strike me. This companion does it. (laughs) He strikes the prophet. The prophet has a disfigured face now. He bandages up his eye, and he goes to King Ahab, disguised, and meets him on the road. It's a kind of ruse. The king stops. He doesn't know who this man is. It's kind of a... Reminder of other incidents, isn't it? Of that woman of Tekoa and meeting David, or even to one degree, Judah and Tamar. Uh, and, and here it's uh, the prophet meets with the king, and, and it's a kind of fictional story that's then uh, brought up. The king wonders, why are you so bandaged? Well, he says, I had a, a man, a kind of prisoner of war that I was to look after. Well, I. Um, I wasn't to let him go missing at all. I had a responsibility. And indeed, uh, the responsibility was that if I let this man go, if he was missing, well, then I'm to give my life for this man's 
uh, life. And then he makes an excuse and he says, well, you know, I got busy with this and that. And the prisoner escaped. Well, the king says he's incensed. Well, you said very clearly it was your responsibility to keep this prisoner. And so the sentence has come forth from your own lips. You shall die. And that's what, uh, it kind of reminds you, does it not, of Nathan and that story of that little ewe lamb and confronting David's uh, sin. David delivers the verdict out of his own mouth. And here is King Ahab delivering the verdict from his own mouth. You have said it, a life for a life. Well, the prophet rips off his disguise and says, well, you have let go out of your hand the man whom the Lord had devoted to destruction. So your life for his life, your people for his people. Ahab indeed had let the Lord's prisoner escape through his negligence and disobedience and self-will He had ignored the Lord's command. Ahab thought that he knew better than the Lord and that God's word was something that he didn't have to be so careful to follow. Ahab's chief responsibility as a king, a shepherd over God's people, was fidelity to God's revealed word. And that was the very thing which this king failed to do. And so through his own disobedience... Syria's defeat was turned into a defeat for Israel as well. And in this final section, dear friends, we see uh, the vital importance, the life of the king of Israel, and indeed we might say the vital importance in your life and in my life as well, of complete, utter devotion and obedience to the revealed will of God. When God's will conflicts with what we in our own wisdom think the right course is, we are to be utterly devoted to the Word of God. God's Word above everything else. We are to know His Word, study His Word, discern what His Word says, hear the Word of God spoken to us. We are to meditate on His law and we are to obey it in absolutely every sphere of life. We are to obey it in the way that we raise our family. We are to obey it in the way that we conduct our business, in the things that we speak about. It is to be the Lord's Word, which is to be the absolute rule of obedience in our lives. Dear friends, are you one who is going to live by the Word of God? Ahab didn't. It receives such grace, such kindness, such demonstrations of the Lord's power. And yet he discarded what the word of God said when it came down to it. Utter failure. Friends, might you and I who have received a similar word of grace and of power be utterly committed to and devoted to complete obedience, the unfailing word of the living God. Let's pray together. Lord, our God in heaven, we thank you for the lessons that are learned out of this ancient battle. We know this is not just simply history that we have read, but it is your revelation for us and for our instruction today. We pray, O God, that we would not set these things aside, that we would draw comfort from your grace and from your power. 
that, Lord, we would receive fresh conviction today to follow you no matter what, your word no matter the cost. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Uh, amen.